are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Thanks again, JC. Well, I don't think there's a bad month in the calendar, especially in a place where we have all these seasons and each one seems to have its own special feel and and March is no different. I'm looking forward to this month. We have things like St. Patrick's Day and March Madness and Men's Retreat next weekend. Then we have the clock springing forward, as Megan mentioned. And March also has some cool sayings. So I wonder if you've heard this one before, especially the kids. March supposedly comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb, Megan's favorite animal. There it is again. And then, of course, this one maybe the adults will remember. There's that famous line from Shakespeare, Beware the Ides of March. So like most anything I read in Shakespeare, though, I'm like, wow, that's impressive. I have no idea what it means. So what is the Ides of March? This line is from the play Julius Caesar. And Ides is simply the Old English way of saying 15th. But Ides sounds so much cooler than saying, beware the 15th of March. And so they went with that. Now why they said it in the play is very interesting. It's a reference to actual events from the life of Julius Caesar. And as you might remember from world history class, or have long since forgotten, but I will remind you, Julius Caesar was in charge of the Roman Republic as it was shaping into the empire. And in 45 BC, Julius thought he would just adjust the calendar a little bit. You see, up until that point, the calendar had 355 days, but after consulting with his astronomer, Julius thought he was going to add 10 more, take it to 365, which also changed kind of where the new year fell. It had always fallen around March 15th, but with Julius making these changes, it now shifted to January 1st. So it's 365 days. He also knows to add a leap year, I think yesterday every four years so that it stays on track with the sun. Pretty smart guy. But guess what? Shortly after he made this change to the calendar, he assumed a new title. He took on the title Dictator Perpetuo, which is just a fancy Latin way of saying dictator for life. So imagine putting that on your email signature. (laughs) Not a way to win friends and influence people. And it didn't sit so well with some of the Roman senators. So on the 15th of March, 44 BC, they did him in. They took him out on the steps of the theater. It's like a clue. 
And ever since then, the Ides of March has been linked to Julius Caesar and his assassination. Beware the Ides of March. What is that old saying? Have you heard this one before? Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Heard that before? The Roman Empire is like a poster child for the corruption of power. Just study the lives of the Caesars. And of course, isn't it interesting that it's into that setting that Jesus of Nazareth is born? How does the Christmas story start in Luke 2? And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, followed right in line after Julius. And Jesus was born into this world as a king, but such a different kind of king and such a different kind of power. And I want to ask you throughout the message this morning, what does good power look like? What does good power look like? If there were areas of your life where the hand of God would move in power, what would that look like? I think it would look a lot like Jesus. This is the season of Lent that we begin today, the first Sunday of Lent. And we're going to, throughout Lent, finish this simple phrase, Jesus is. And each Sunday, we'll finish that phrase with a different word to describe the attributes of Jesus. It's been on my heart, kind of moving through the year, that we would, for Lent, go back into the Gospels and study the character of Christ and just ask these simple questions that are so foundational to our faith. What was Jesus like? What do we see in Him? Who is Jesus? And each week we'll put in a new word, and for this first Sunday we're saying Jesus is powerful. And that He's powerful instead of weak or incapable. Well, that should matter a great deal to us. Because literally that makes all the difference in the world when you think about it. That Jesus is powerful. It makes all the difference in your life and in mine. And today I want to show you specifically Jesus' power and authority in the Scriptures starting here in Luke 4. So as you look at it, we have it in front of us. I want you to know this is the first narrated episode from Jesus' public ministry. It is the only place where Luke records the content of the teaching that Jesus did in the synagogues. And this passage basically summarizes Jesus' whole ministry. It's a very significant Bible passage. I hope as you spend time in Scripture or exploring new Bibles that you kind of collect favorite passages along the way. And this is one of my personal favorites. Here's what leads into it. In Luke 3, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. In Luke 4, verse 1, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted by the devil. And then in Luke 4, verse 14, we get at our passage today, and here's what it says. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So put together this story. He's returning from the wilderness to his home region of Galilee. And then that key phrase, he returned in the power of the Spirit. We point this out because if we're going to talk about the power and authority of Jesus... We cannot miss the presence of the Holy Spirit with Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, we will see, has been present in Jesus' life in a powerful way since the very beginning. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a what animal? In the form of a dove. He comes down and rests on Jesus at his baptism. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And now here he is returning to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So here's the connection, the simple connection I'd like to make as we get underway. If you or I desire to become more like Jesus, we must learn about the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the indwelling power of the Spirit as we trust in Jesus and that Spirit is poured out on us. Paul said, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step. Let's come along with the Spirit. And when Jesus arrives home from the wilderness, I almost picture him arriving home kind of with a full tank. You ever been away, you've had a a vacation or just a quiet weekend, a Sunday Sabbath day of rest, and you're back at it with a full tank? I feel like that's a description spiritually here. Jesus has spent time with the Father. He's resisted the temptations of the devil. And he comes back to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And when Jesus comes back, as we read the story with JC, we see somebody coming back. It's like celebrity status as he comes back into Galilee. Everybody's talking about him. It is the buzz around town. We see Jesus is teaching in all the synagogues in the region. And I picture, you know, just people are live streaming it and posting it. And they're talking with their friends about it. Jesus is the buzz. And then comes this big momentous day where Jesus goes back to his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth. And he's going to teach in his home synagogue where he grew up all those years as a kid. Every Sabbath going to service. Some of you have church backgrounds where you served as an altar boy or an acolyte. And you remember that. I picture Jesus growing up in Nazareth and that was him. And now he's all grown up and he's come home and he stands up to do the scripture reading. And a hush falls over his home church as the attendant hands him the scroll Jesus unrolls it, goes to Isaiah 61, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This whole section in Isaiah is about the coming Savior. Isaiah 61. It's all about the Messiah. The one who God would send to save His people. And up until that very day in Nazareth, the people were waiting for that time. They're waiting for the one who will come to deliver them. And so what happens next is absolutely stunning. If there was such a thing as a mic drop in the first century, this is it. This is the mic drop in Luke. Here's what happens. Jesus rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down, which is the normal posture in their culture for teaching. You sit down, that means you're a teacher and you have the authority to teach. 
In our culture, teachers usually stand at the front of a classroom. So Jesus takes his seat and it says, I love this line in the text, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They were riveted. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. And Jesus said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they all knew what he was saying. He was saying, Isaiah 61, this part about the coming Savior, the Messiah, the Deliverer, that's me. He's saying, the wait is over. I'm here. And my kingdom has come. What does good power look like? Let me tell you a story recounted by a U.S. Navy sailor. Two battleships were assigned to the training squadron and had been at sea doing maneuvers in pretty heavy weather over several days. And the sailor reported that, he writes about this, says, I was serving on the lead battleship, and I was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported, light bearing on the starboard bow. The captain asked, is it steady or moving astern? The lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant that we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman, and he said, signal that ship, we are on a collision course, advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send, I'm a captain, change course 20 degrees. The signal came back, I'm a seaman, second class, you had better change course 20 degrees. By this time, the captain was furious and he spat out, send, I am a battleship, change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal, I'm a lighthouse. And the Navy sailor said, we changed course. (laughs) What does good power look like? What does rightful authority look like? I think it looks a lot like Jesus and a lot like Isaiah 61. Remember what we said earlier, when Jesus reads this passage, it's like a preview of everything now that he will do. This is why he came. He came to exercise his power and authority as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And it was good. And if we were to continue reading through Luke's Gospels, we didn't plan that, but just an idea, right? Megan said, kids, you could try that over the next several days, next several weeks. If we were to read through Luke's Gospel or any of the four Gospels for that matter, we would see the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 we would see Jesus' power and authority in six distinct ways. And I want to briefly share those with you this morning. Not just because they're of such importance theologically, which they certainly are, but also because Jesus' authority over these areas affects every single one of our lives. Sin, death, and the devil are sometimes called the unholy trinity by theologians. And we all feel the pain and afflictions of these things. The old liturgy I was thinking about says we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. So what is our solution? Who can save us? 
It is the power and authority of Jesus, which he demonstrates in these six ways. The first is Jesus' authority to teach. He is powerful to teach. That's on display here in our passage in Luke 4. When Jesus sits back down and says this scripture is now fulfilled, it says that the people were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And later in the chapter it says, if you would scan down to verse 32, it says they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. You see, the acceptable way to teach in their culture was to never go out on your own foot but to cite the previous generations of teachers. It reminded me kind of how attorneys today will cite previous court cases to establish legal precedent. And and the more you could pile up, the better. And so that's what Jewish rabbis did. That's how they taught. But Jesus' way of teaching was totally different. He interpreted the Scriptures by His own authority. So he'd take them into Scripture, into the Old Testament, and then he would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And that is his authority to teach. And it is our joy and privilege to learn from him if we are willing. The second area where Jesus shows his power is in his authority to cast out demons. Now and then, the spiritual world is real. We are in a spiritual battle. There are demonic influences that seek to impact our lives. There are spiritual forces of evil at work in the world, but Jesus has put them in check. Later in Luke 4, we're just humming along through Luke's gospel, Jesus encounters a man in Capernaum who's possessed by a demon. When the demon sees Jesus, he recognizes his divine authority and he begs Jesus not to destroy him. And then just with a few stern words, Jesus commands the demon to be quiet and to come out. And the demon obeys like a submissive dog, which amazes the people watching. And they say, this is in verse 36, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And I guess of the six that we're going to list up here, this is the one where we might ask, well, is this still relevant to us today? You know, 21st century America. Does it matter to me if Jesus has sovereign authority over the spiritual realm? And we would say, yes, yes, it does. We just think about our own lives. Some of us here have wondered if there might not be a dark spiritual cloud hanging over your life. Some of us, like Martin Luther, have felt like we are under some kind of spiritual attack. It matters. This matters immensely that the name of Jesus carries power that is greater than any demon or spiritual force on earth. Number three, the third area is Jesus' authority over sickness and his power to heal. We are still in Luke 4. See how this passage is being carried out. At the end of Luke 4, we have the story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. It's a brief account, and yet the most striking part of this story is when it says Jesus bent over her and rebuked the fever. In verse 39. And I want you to imagine that you go to your clinic to your primary care provider, and you go to your clinic, and upon hearing what's wrong, 
the doctor bends toward you and rebukes your symptoms. Just imagine this. It would be a very awkward moment, wouldn't it? What does it even look like to rebuke a fever? I don't know. But Jesus did it, and it was gone. And then it says in verse 40, still in chapter 4, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Of course, sometimes healing does not come this side of heaven. And some of us know that journey well. Even now, there are some among us who are waiting for and praying for healing. It would go beyond the scope of the time we have available today in our message to wrestle with those details, but I do want to simply acknowledge the difficult questions that some of us do wrestle with. I remember being on the floor of Children's Hospital when a seasoned old physician who was a Christian said to me, we pray for miracles and sometimes we get them. That's what he knew. That much he knew. And one thing that we know to be true in life and in death is that there is a great physician who holds our lives in his hands. And whether it is in this life or it is in eternity, our healer is coming. And Jesus will bring his authority to bear as healer. Fourth, and moving quickly now, Jesus has the power to forgive sin. In Luke 5, some friends lower a sick man down through a hole in the roof. And it must have been quite the scene. If you can imagine this, this crowded house and this man's cot being lowered down through the ceiling. And what's the first thing that Jesus says? Obviously, he has come for healing from sickness. The first thing that Jesus says, though, is it says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And that puts the religious leaders around the room into a frenzy. And they're saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're absolutely right. And to prove his point and to double down, Jesus then heals the man as visible evidence of his claim to forgive. Today as we receive communion, we will remember that by his death on the cross, Jesus forgives all of our sin, past, present, and future. And he says to you, friend, your sins are forgiven. And that is good news. Because one day Jesus will also return to judge the earth in righteousness. And this is all about his authority over sin. Number five, the fifth area where we see how powerful Jesus is, is his authority even over death. So we talked about sickness, talked about the power of sin, but now his power to raise the dead. In Luke 7, Jesus is in the town of Nain where a funeral is underway. The only son of a widow has passed away, and as Jesus arrives, they're processing outside the city to the burial site. Just in your mind's eye, in your imagination, Jesus walks up to this funeral procession. He stops the pallbearers. He puts his hand upon the open casket. And what does the power of Jesus look like? 
He just says with a word, young man, I say to you, get up. It's the same word for resurrection. And the boy sits up and started talking. Just a side note, you ever wonder what he was saying as he started to talk? It says, at the end of that story, Jesus gave him back to his mother. Wow. Yesterday, I was with a family whose mother was passing away. We stood around her bed, and we read the promises of Scripture over her as she was taking her last breaths. And one of the things that we read was this from 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We stood around her and we said, we win. We said, Nancy, you win. The cross has the final word, not this day. Now the sixth and final area where we see Jesus' authority is in his power over all creation. If it wasn't these other five areas altogether enough, we see Jesus' authority over all of the universe. His power to calm the storm. In Luke 8, Jesus is asleep in the boats on the Sea of Galilee. His disciples are at the oars when a great storm descends upon the sea. And the disciples, even some of them veteran fishermen, are terrified and they shake Jesus awake and they say, we're going to drown. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, I I can't believe I fell asleep? And he goes and he grabs an oar to help? No, it says he stood up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. And the storm was gone. Do you remember what the disciples said in that moment? They said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this Jesus? What is he like? In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, there's a scene where Mr. Beaver is telling the girl Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion. Susan is surprised to hear that because she has just assumed all along that Aslan was a man. And she tells Mr. Beaver in the story, she says, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. My brothers and sisters, that is what good power looks like. And I want to ask you very personally this morning, have you recognized the power and authority of Jesus over your life? Have you bent your knee to King Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord, we do that now before your throne. We bend our knee to your power and authority. 
Lord, we just call out to you and we say that that would be paired with your goodness must be one of the greatest gifts we could ever receive. That you, Lord, are powerful and the authority over all of these things that we have listed and that you seek our good. We thank you, Lord, for this gift. And we pray that more and more over the years of our life, your power and authority will be established. That we would keep in step with your Holy Spirit. We pray together in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.